So sometimes I'll be at a party and somebody in, in publishing will come up and they'll buttonhole me and they'll go, listen, you're from the internet. And I'll go, yeah. And they'll go, look, uh, I don't really ever want to read on one of those devices. And now they used to say that a lot more than they do now because they all have Kindles. But oftentimes you'll hear something like this. Books aren't products. Books are creative endeavors. They're individual. They're singular as any work of art. They can't be tweaked as if they're idling wrong. They can't have leaves pulled off as they rot like a cabbage or lettuce. I call the people who say things like that the guten bourgeois. They believe in the cultural primacy of writers and editors. They, they feel good. They actually feel a little bit superior about working in publishing. Like, it's their job to drive culture forward. And they're a little proud to admit, actually, that the web confuses them, that they don't really get it. You know, it'll be like, well, we gave away all those short stories on the website, but it didn't sell any books. Or, or, you know, we built this promo site for our author, and he does the crime novels, and it was just this boondoggle, and we didn't get any traffic. And it's this weird thing, too, where they're, they're, they're telling you this, but there's also that sense of pride, like, ah, that web, it's just never going to really work for publishing. They kind of think that the fundamental question of the web, right, is, what can I read today? And so, like, web developers have been, have been trying to do that. Like, a publisher will come to you, or a newspaper will come to you, or a TV people will come to you and go, how can we make the web more like TV? Because that's what we understand. And, like, the web developers go, oh, my God, oh, my God, you're going to give me money. And they go, and they build it, and they try to make it work. And the truth is, they're trying to answer the question of those media on the web, and that's the wrong way to do it. There is a question that is fundamental to the web. It's the question that everybody asks when they sit down in front of their web browser. The question that the web answers is, why wasn't I consulted? Now that's the rule. That is the rule from which all the other rules online are derived. Let me just give a few examples. Wikipedia, Stack Overflow, Hunch, Reddit, Metafilter, YouTube, Twitter, StumbleUpon, About, Quora, eBay, Yelp, Flickr, IMDb, Amazon.com, Craigslist, GitHub, SourceForge, every message board or site with comments. The entire open source movement. Like, look at Wikipedia. It's created for free by unpaid labor. It taps into this basic human need to be consulted. So when you hear someone talking about something really nice, like the cognitive surplus that leads to Wikipedia or the wisdom of crowds, which is kind of a funny thing when you think about crowds, because what would crowds do really well is like lynch. Um, take a step back from that and just think, what are they really doing? What are they really trying to do? YouTube, right? They create this thing at first so that anyone can upload a video. So they actually said, we're consulting you. You can upload video. But that was not enough. Like People could not stop there, so they give them comments. You can comment on the videos that other people upload. Okay, so that's great. We've got two levels of why wasn't I consulted. But then they were like, People, that just wasn't even enough then, so they have to put the little thumbs up, thumbs down icons because like people literally, they need to, to keep people coming back, back to the site and to satisfy their users. They kind of have to give them the equivalent of this like pure caveman grunt that they can emit. And that's what a thumbs up and th thumbs up is you going <clears throat> and thumbs down is you going <clears throat> and that's, that's where YouTube ends up. And once you get to that point, you're kind of at this fundamental level. You're absolutely at the base and you have 
consulted everyone, including possibly, and if you look at YouTube comments, almost de de definitively, the dumbest possible human beings, right? And you have made it possible for every single one of these people to feel that they own and control some aspect of this site and have enlarged their weird monkey territory. So what kind of medium is the web if the fundamental question is, why wasn't I consulted? It's a medium for customer service. That's what I'm going to tell you if you're in publishing, if you're one of my guten bourgeois button-holding friends. I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to go, stop trying to publish online. Stop trying to make it look like the thing you went to graduate school for. Instead, just accept that it's people out there pounding on their keyboard and grunting and you want to get the good grunts and convince them that maybe they should buy your thing. Don't count on your fellow guten bourgeois to actually buy things, though. They're just out there clicking that little thumb icon on YouTube like everybody else. Paul Ford wrote that piece, The Web is a Customer Service Medium, for his website, F-Train. He also collects URLs. Two recent acquisitions are whywasn'tIConsulted.com and commentsareclosed.com. I've been sitting on this recording for months now. I knew I wanted to use it as a lead-in for an internet-centric episode, but then, somehow, I lost total control of the radio show. Somehow, my program turned into a radio show called Too Much Internet. Now, I like doing stories about the internet. Don't get me wrong, it's a big part of the program. But lately, I've been feeling a bit of internet's overload. And as everybody knows, when you're feeling a bit of internet's overload, the best thing you can do for yourself is get on an airplane and go to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest Interactive. My name is Carlin Lee Lesser, and uh, I'm at South by Southwest this year to talk about uh, social media and healthcare. The name of my presentation is Social Health, Who Wants to Like Hemorrhoid Cream? Uh, my name is Jay Cuthrell. I'm here at South by Southwest, my fourth time, third time speaking at something, and my blog is fudge.org. If you have an active fantasy world in your mind, does that put you in extreme liability if someone happens to be listening at the time when you say something? And that's, that's really a challenge, isn't it? It's, 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 uh, someone could say, oh, you're yelling fire in a crowded theater. But if someone's listening for the word fire and the crowded theater is the Internet, maybe you can get yourself in trouble. I'm Chriselle Loran, and I'm here to present for my kindergarten or markets better than you. My name is Adele McAleer. I'm a marketing and social media consultant, but my that's my day job. My, my sideline is I'm a researcher and speaker on digital legacy issues. And so I'm here at South by Southwest presenting on a panel called You're Dead, Your Data Isn't. Now what happens? 
you know, you could haunt somebody after your death. You could set these things up. I can't. I'm sorry. I don't recall the name of the service. Do you remember what, what, like what you could do though? Uh, you, you basically set up messages to, to be sent after you've passed, and they, this particular one positioned themselves as a, as a haunting service. But, but any of these uh, digital executive services will, will um, allow you to set up uh, email messages or video messages or audio messages, anything you like, um, to, to be dispatched to people after you've been dispatched. The number of Facebook pages that have, have um, popped up with RIP in the name of them, a, a phenomenal amount of them. Um, my name is Allison Aldridge Sauer, and I'm at South by Southwest uh, to present a panel. The title of the panel is What Digital Tribes Can Learn from Native Americans. Uh, and it really came from the, you know, I started seeing tribes as this buzz term used all over the place. Seth Godin wrote a book uh, titled Tribes. And um, as a Native American, I started to wonder how people were defining this term, like what were they looking for? And uh, it seemed like they were looking for something, um, uh, a little bit more connectivity, a deeper sense of community, and, um, and I started to dig into it and I thought there were a lot of things in the Native American experience that could be um, thought about in the digital community space um, to strengthen that level of connection people have. I spent a whole week with people who live, eat, and sleep the internet. And while I thought I would spend most of my time recording wacky corporate types talking about wacky corporate apps and wacky internet panel discussions, I have to say I actually learned quite a bit at South by Southwest. And can I really complain? I mean, I did get to spend a week hanging out with some of my favorite people from the internet. You see a lot of ideas at South by Southwest that are about how to get people to give up information about themselves that then can be aggregated and manipulated. So like every new startup is like, we have an app that will help you check in in multiple places on multiple platforms. So people all across everywhere will know where you are. And it'll also check you into like Groupon. So it'll tell you which coupons are available in that region. And it's like, you know, instant, just in time crowd manipulation on the fly. That doesn't sound very good, though. It doesn't, does it? No. <laughs> Annalie Newitz is the editor of the blog io9 and a South by Southwest regular. This year, she put together a panel that examines what science fiction can tell us about social media. Definitely a darker lens. For example, there is no wisdom of crowds here. In this context, there's only the hive mind. You know, this isn't a new thought that social media is creating a hive mind, but what was interesting is the idea that Basically, artificial intelligence is probably going to evolve out of that hive mind. And it's not going to look anything like Hal from 2001. It's not going to sing a song. It's not going to have a kind of malicious intent. It's probably going to be kind of dumb, um, sort of like a shark seeking out information instead of blood. And what kind of a relationship are we as humans going to have with this entity, which represents sort of the sum of our desires and the things we search for and the, the kind of ugly truths of what we look at? Many of Newitz's speculations have roots in our present-day technology and information architecture. 
we are placing more and more importance on information that's recent rather than relevant. And at the same time, we're doing a really lousy job of archiving the no longer recent. Social media is really this incredibly ephemeral thing. And one of the things that's always been very important about media is that it serves as a kind of collective memory. And all of us were very worried about the fact that so much of the richness of social media is not being preserved. And so it's like we're having this incredible conversation uh, that we can instantaneously search, but then it's gone in a week or a month or a year. And if all of our knowledge and all of our Uh, scientific efforts and all of our cultural puzzling out of what's going on are happening in this kind of ephemeral space where there's the present day conversation but no remembering of it, it does lead to a kind of dystopian future where the more you deprive people of memory, the more they're able, they're vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And so when you don't preserve that good part, what's left is that present day co-option of your voice into marketing or the privacy invasion, but none of the good stuff. You know, it becomes a classic 1984 kind of scenario where the history can be easily manipulated. Another hot topic at South by Southwest was the game world. And one of Newitz's co-panelists, the illustrator Molly Crabapple, reminded everyone that in sci-fi, games are never just about fun. She said, look, What's going to happen with gamification is, you know, in the future, people won't go to work at Walmart. They'll play a game, which is, let's stack boxes. And whoever stacks boxes the best at Walmart gets to take home a salary. And everybody who loses doesn't get to. But we all had fun. But I think when you combine those two ideas of how social media rips us off and co-opts us and fools us into doing things that are bad for us, like stacking boxes for no money. Um, And you combine that with sort of this idea of this kind of adversarial um, hive mind that we're creating. Um, It it really allows you to think about how weird the future is going to be as a result of having, you know, Twitter implants in your brain. It's a pretty safe bet that when Twitter implants do arrive, they will be announced at South by Southwest. But for now, allow me to introduce you to the Twitter bot. My name's Greg Mara, and I'm here talking about social robots and sort of how to build these autonomous Twitter agents that can infiltrate social, social groups and, and sort of portray themselves as valuable content contributors, but actually are just automated software. When Greg Mara was a student at Olin College, he built and tested a series of Twitter bots. One of his most successful was Track Girl. Track Girl followed a bunch of users who were training for marathons or interested in 5Ks, and she tweeted about her running too. She tweeted she was training for her own marathon, she tweeted her race times from other events, and sort of built up a following in this small running community. And then one day, Track Girl tweeted that she'd fallen and hurt her knee. And this wasn't true, because Track Girl's a piece of software running on one of our servers, but people saw that Track Girl was injured, and they followed up to her, and they said, oh my gosh, are you okay? Is this going to interfere with your training for the marathon? And so even though Track Girl wasn't a real person, she'd built up this emotional connection with people on Twitter. Mara programmed Track Girl to follow like-minded users and to copy and paste tweets from other like-minded users. Track Girl's follow-back rate was over 25%. It turns out that Twitter bots are after pretty much the same thing as Twitter people. Lots and lots of followers. Interestingly, some of Mara's Twitter bots discovered all on their own that some topics get you more followers 
than others. We originally launched Clark's Adventure as this outdoor mountain climbing enthusiast guy. And for the first couple months, he was tweeting about mountain biking and like going on hikes and stuff. But then after a while, somehow he ended up involved in diabetes and, and copied a couple diabetes tweets. And other people who were interested in diabetes on Twitter, sort of the activist community, started following Clark's adventure. And instead of tweeting about these outdoors things he was doing, he started tweeting about diabetes walks that he was participating in, or new news articles about diabetes research. And as he went from dozens of followers as an outdoors enthusiast to hundreds of followers as a diabetes enthusiast, he went through another shift. And somehow he turned into a social media guru and was tweeting about search engine optimization and how to get the biggest return on Facebook. And he went from hundreds of followers to thousands of followers. And so over months, completely autonomously, without any human intervention, Clark evolved to sort of meet the desires of the people who were following him. Now, there are thousands and thousands of self-professed social media gurus on Twitter. And so I actually take comfort in the idea that most of them are fake. But Mara's research raises some pretty disturbing issues. You can imagine what might you do with this sort of platform once you have the ability to create these autonomous agents on Twitter. One idea is you could sort of do clandestine marketing. So imagine you're following sort of a mommy blogger on Twitter, she's tweeting about raising her kids and stuff like that. But, but one day she's like, oh, I bought this new stroller. And this is like my favorite stroller. It's absolutely the best stroller. And strollers are really expensive items to buy. And she tweets a link to some stroller company website. It turns out the stroller company was running the Twitter account the whole time, was building up false credentials, and then just influencing consumers by recommending a product. And when someone you trust recommends a product, you're much more likely to investigate it and follow through than if you just saw an advertisement on television. And while marketers are absolutely going to exploit technologies like this, what happens when someone like Karl Rove gets a hold of the software? With these social robots, a single puppet master can control hundreds or thousands of these robots at the same time. And by coordinating the robot's activities, it's possible to sort of create fictionalized events or create a perception of buzz around a topic that doesn't actually exist. Now, Greg Mara does not share my pure terror. In fact, like all brilliant but naive scientists, he believes Twitter bots can be used for the benefit of society. I think there's possibilities to almost do good with this technology. There's a lot of research that shows that what your friends do or how your friends feel strongly influences your own behavior. So if lots of your friends go to the gym, you're much more likely to go to the gym. If lots of your friends are always depressed and, and saying how much they hate things, then you're more likely to be sad also. So maybe we could take this technology, find a bunch of users on Twitter who don't look very happy, and then launch a bunch of happy social robots against them. And these happy social robots will talk about like how wonderful their life is and how much going to the gym is fun. And then we can help these people sort of engage with more positive emotions. Okay, here's a big question. As these bots start to take on lives of their own and start to participate more and more in our online conversations, how much protection does their speech get? I mean, what happens when Track Girl starts spewing hate speech? I mean, we do have to draw the line somewhere. Every time we have gone backwards in free speech in this country, it has been a disaster. Brian Cuban is a fierce defender of free speech. When I asked him about the Supreme Court decision about the Westboro Baptist Church, he said the case should have been thrown out of court. And while he admits our culture can be pretty hateful, he finds it worrisome when distasteful speech is labeled as hate speech. Everyone carries their own definition of hate speech. Let me give you an example. 
I am a uh, my brother owns the Dallas Mavericks, and I am a obviously a Dallas Mavericks fan. Uh, a couple years ago, we were playing the Denver Nuggets in the playoffs, and I tweeted and I called them the Denver Thuggets. I had a couple people bombarding me that I was engaging in hate speech, and I mean, and I'm like, this is smack talk, and they really thought that was legitimate hate speech. I had no idea that Brian was Mark Cuban's brother until I was sitting across from him in his hotel room. I should have brought a T-shirt. Brian Cuban came to South by Southwest to talk about the viral nature of hate speech. He says there are two primary directions in which hate moves online. The first is from the bottom up. Viral hate working from the ground up is grassroots hatred. You have uh, the KKK, the, the groups you can see online, Stormfront, uh, which happens to be the first uh, internet hate group to go onto the web in 1990. Uh, so you have hate, you know, you have your you know, right wing and your left wing and you have these hate groups. That is, and they take it viral through social media. And it build, and the message builds, they grab on a message and the message builds, it builds within their own social network. And it, it goes viral within a demographic. Cuban believes we shouldn't be worried about this kind of hate speech because it can only cause limited damage. He's much more concerned with what he calls top-down hate speech, the kind of speech that starts with something like the King hearings in Washington, the Republican Get Real Symposium on Radical Muslims, hearings Cuban likens to witch hunts. Top-down messages that affect and that, that go across an entire uh, minority base do scare me because people listen. That takes vi- the viral nature and puts a blanket over it, and it spreads down very quickly. When you're working ground up, it's got a building blocks. You've got to hate this. You know, you've you got to build it. You've got to build your group. You've got to build your social network of hatred. But when it's the government working backwards, it is viral hatred, and, and it, it cascades. As we try to understand just how information makes its way online, I think Brian Cuban gives us something to think about that's really simple but profound. Because the internet offers much more help to a top-down hate campaign. Does the internet make top-down uh, hatred easier to go viral? Absolutely, because the message, you got to remember, the message is starting with somebody, and to put it on the most basic level, the message is starting with uh, somebody with exponentially millions of Twitter followers, okay, versus starting someone with a few trying to expand, trying to build it. So that, that's why. Uh, it comes to credibility. When the message starts with government credibility, when the message starts with brand credibility, even if it's a message of hate, that is top down and that cascades down quicker than it builds up. That is what the internet does. Now, I like to think that I'm pretty plugged in when it comes to the future of media. I have lots of friends and colleagues who work on the front lines and foundations and think tanks. And thanks to the show, I've gotten to meet some of the leading thinkers working in policy and technology. And many of them were at South by Southwest. Most of them were speaking on panels in the public media track at the festival. And I decided this time to venture out. And I stumbled onto something which I think might turn out to be the real future of media. Virgin, Apple, Coca-Cola, Nike, all these brands that are always in the top 10 brands around the world have a large enough audience 
and larger than a lot of specialty channels, they could start to create their own content. They're bigger than some networks that are selling advertising. And so how do you start to look at and change the conversation? Well, what does Coke look like as a medium? Matt DiPaola is an ad man from BBDO Proximity Canada. He wants to help brands like Coca-Cola realize their potential as content creators. I mean, the technology has come along that Coke can actually have a conversation um, directly with consumers. And, and, you know, it's something consumers want. You know, if I look at an example of something we did a couple years ago, which was one of those ones that kind of put a light bulb in our head, we did this work for Gillette um, on body grooming and, you know, manscaping. And, you know, the client was like, okay, we're heading into, you know, we're in a recession. Um, men are shaving less, or they're shaving less frequently uh, because they want, to, you know, want their blades to last longer. It's helped them save money. And they're like, you know, how do we get people to, to shave more? And so we started, you know, we started looking online. And what we realized, you know, we just, you know, again, using a free tool like Google Insights, we could see that men were looking for information on how to shave other parts of their body. And men being not the best communicators in the world, you're not going to ask your buddy saying, how do you shave your balls? You're going to look for that information. And, and, and there, you know, there wasn't really a lot of credible content. There's some jokes about manscaping. There's some other stuff going on. But there wasn't really a credible, like, how should you do it? So we're like, okay, well, let's, let's create some videos that were how-to style so they fit what consumers were looking for. And we broke them, up by, broke them up by very specific subjects. So we picked the five top areas that men were looking for information on how to shave parts of their body other than their face. And we created these how-to videos. And you know, it got tremendous traction because we identified something that there was a gap in the marketplace that people wanted to hear. And Gillette could credibly answer that. And they didn't answer it in a buy this razor and shave your balls. It's a, here's a step-by-step how-to thing just brought to you by Gillette. But, you know, and, and it worked wonders for them. You know, it kind of blows my mind that Deepali uses Gillette as an example of what branded content could look like because I recently learned that Gillette actually made the first radio advertisement. Really, back in the early days when no one even knew what a radio ad should sound like, Gillette created a series of informational lectures on beards. But anyways, this isn't a history lesson. This is a story about the future. Look at all the patents and trademarks in the world right now. Nothing's owned by Madison Avenue. It's all, and especially within the marketing world, it's all owned by Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook. They are going to be defining what advertising is going to be in the future. So for, an, you know, for us as an agency, agency to survive, we've got to look at different business models. And so part of me is like, okay, well, if we don't own anything other than the people and the time they spend on the business the longevity in the future of that is dangerous. So how do we now start to go out and co-create things and look at, you know, is there a, a middle ground on the business model working with content creators to create an IP, create a revenue sharing model around that and set up that business around where, you know, clients can now own something intrinsically um, that they can monetize beyond just their products. Another example DePaula shared with me was a project he recently worked on with HP, comedian Rob Riggle, and the Upright Citizens Brigade. They created this live improv event uh, where the HP ePrint printer was part of that uh, event where consumers could email in and Rob Riggle would get content off the printer and have the Upright Citizens Brigade do improv as a live event. Now, to me, the missing piece for that is that was a one-off campaign. 
they just, re, they just invented truly interactive television. They just reinvented whose line is it anyway. Why was that not trademarked as an IP and pitched as a weekly series? Of course, corporate brands aren't just going to create reality TV. They're going to produce um, journalism, too. A company is often the best domain expert. They're better than any journalist about understanding their industry. And they have the best perspectives. And I think uh, now they're able to really publish it and get out there on their own without you know, having to uh, kind of pitch to journalists. So they're able to self-publish and get their point of views out there. And I think that's a very empowering thing, both for marketers, but also for consumers. Pawan Deshpande is the CEO and founder of HiFire, a content curation platform for marketers. What we do is we enable marketers to be publishers. One of Deshpande's customers is a data center in Iceland, a data center that wants to position itself in the green technology marketplace. They're trying to brand themselves as a green data center. And if I'm interested in green data centers uh, right now, there's not a lot of places I can go. I have to go to green publications, and every once in a while they talk about green data centers specifically, or I go to data center and cloud computing publications, and they don't always talk about energy-efficient data centers. So what this customer has done is they've pulled together all the relevant content about green data centers and made a trade publication, Green Data Center News. They write some of the content, and a lot of it they're just pointing to existing content, but it's all in one central location. It's a new audience that they wouldn't have got otherwise. Now, I have to say that I'm not really bothered by the idea of Gillette cornering the marketplace for men's grooming news, or for that matter, some Iceland data center owning Green Center Daily News. But I definitely don't want to live in a world where Big Pharma provides us with health news, where BP reports on the environment, and Blackwater, or whatever the hell they call themselves now, reports from the battlefield. That's just not journalism, right? The thing about journalism is traditionally you're supposed to be fair, balanced, neutral. You're supposed to be able to go in, talk to human beings, and sift out where the truth lies and to protect your readers from falsehoods. Uh, That function, I think, is equally important if you're Procter & Gamble. That's Gary Kim, a communications industry analyst who believes we have nothing to fear from brands and companies going into the content creation business because the consumers, he says, won't buy bad information. Companies are going to discover if they do a bad job of putting out content, people are smart enough to figure that out and won't pay any attention to them. And attention is really the currency. Right? For media, whether you're professional or amateur, whatever you want to call it, attention's the currency. If you don't put out interesting content, nobody will come back and visit. If you don't put out relevant and truthful content, nobody's going to pay any attention to you. So at some point, this marketplace is stirring up of all these different ideas and viewpoints should self-correct and lead everyone to up their game. The idea that the consumer will punish companies for putting out bad information is something I heard over and over again from all the brand is content experts. So remember, the next time you get tricked by an army of marketer bots into buying something that makes you sick, it's your fault. 
You have to learn how to do better. One of the things that I think average people have to learn how to do is learn how to filter and sift information and become your own gatekeeper so that you are playing a much more active role as a citizen and a consumer in determining what is valuable, what is useful, what is not useful, who's basically not telling you the full truth, and how can you go about getting the full truth. And this is something a human being learns to do like you learn to ride a bicycle, basically. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but not much more, really. Obviously, if brands are going to start making content, then they're going to need to hire writers, filmmakers, musicians to help them. And I met a lot of creative types at South by Southwest who are tripping over each other, totally ready to sign up. But it turns out there's a catch. Well, for me, a story involves a lot of complex characters. And the complexity means that you've got to have bad qualities along with your good qualities. And what I found frustrating when we were talking with brands for branded entertainment projects was that the brands were really interested in becoming characters, but they weren't interested in necessarily the bad parts. Evan Jones is the owner of Stitch Media, an interactive production house in Toronto. He's done some work with branded entertainment, but he wants to tell stories, and he fears brands don't understand how stories actually work. Right now what we're seeing is stories where the brands are not the source of the conflict. They're, they're the ones who are saving the day. They're rescuing things. You know, they're always the hero in the story. And what we really wanted to do was to have a brand that would be interested in being the villain. Because the villains are memorable. The villains are the stars. Darth Vader. Yeah, th- exactly. You know, Darth Vader is, is the lasting brand of Star Wars. And what we were offering to brands was to be that kind of a character. And did you get any bites on that? We have not yet. Even though Jones is striking out with his make the brand the bad guy strategy, and even though he can't get a sponsor for his online video series Moderation Town, a comedy series about a factoryless small town that tries to reinvent itself as an internet moderation hub, sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? But Evan Jones is still confident that everything will turn out okay. Echoing Gary Kim, he says that at the end of the day, the consumer just won't put up with bad storytelling. I am a producer in my day job, but I'm a consumer of media in my life. And as a consumer of stories, I'm not going to be hanging around that long if I'm continually exposed to, you know, good news messages nonstop. And so I, I can tell you that Branded entertainment won't continue along those lines because I don't think that the market will will be there for an audience that just wants to see, you know, the the campaign message every day. But here's something that young master Evan Jones hasn't considered. What if that story comes with a coupon? Daily Deals as a concept has really exploded in the last couple of years. Groupon, Living Social, these are some of the big names. They've done an amazing job of, like, a lighting fire to the space and it's it's exploded. Consumers are almost treating deals as a currency now. They expect to see it. They love them. John T. Kelt is the CEO of Group Commerce, a new daily deals platform aimed at content publishers. Publishers have been curating content for their audiences for a long time and there's no reason they can't do that for commerce as well. Who better to play in those segments and enter the space than publishers or audience owners in the most general sense. Um, They have great content. They have large audiences that are engaged with that content. They have brands that have authority and trust. And and these are some of the key things that you need to enter the space. Our company provides the the magic in the middle, if you like. It's technology plus know-how of how to stitch those assets together and launch your own 
group buying or social commerce deal service. Jonty Kelt's company is just one of bazillions entering the social coupon space. You see, Groupon, it turns out, is the fastest growing company in the history of the internet. So there is gold in those hills. But group commerce is aiming for the mother load, the content publishers, like the New York Times and Parents Magazine. Our point of view is that consumers don't really distinguish between whether it's words or products and service offers, right? They just want what they want. And if you offer things to your audience that are thoughtfully merchandised and, and considered, that they're going to see that as a, a value-added service. And they're going to like you even more for it. They're going to be more engaged with your brand, as well as creating a new revenue stream for you. Publishers we work with see this not just as an incremental revenue stream, but as a way to further engage their audience, because audience loves deals. Mm-hmm. You know, I say we're in the happiness business. A lot of times, not the deal business. Trisha Hahn is the general manager of Daily Candy Deals, another one of Group Commerce's customers. Daily Candy has been live for 10 years, and our mission was always to, uh, to help our readers discover the best in every city, every, uh, you know, the best food, the best fashion, the best things to do. And what advertisers and marketers face now is an audience, specifically uh, sort of Gen Y, that want stories. They want storytelling around the brands and products that they interact with. It's not even just about editorial content. You know, they want to understand how um, a product that they use every day was, was birthed and who, who created it and why they created it and for what purposes. And so storytelling becomes much more important in, uh, from a overall commerce perspective. It's really, it's, it's, it's not even so much about trying to blur the line between edit and commerce as it is that commerce is coming into its own and needing to tell stories to uh, satisfy its new audience. Over the next year, Han says, the daily deal will become less and less distinguishable from, say, a features article. And as more and more of these deals clutter up our inboxes, publishers like Daily Candy, Han says, will have an edge. We are, we are a highly curated deal site. We do not accept every deal that comes in. We check out the places. We make sure that um, it's a place that we ourselves would want to go and we, that we think our readers would enjoy. But we also work with our merchants to actually create really special experiences. So, for example, in Philadelphia, we worked with a, um, an organic place called uh, Tierra Mia, Uh, And they created an off-menu experience, which was blindfolded organic manicures for you and a friend. Uh, And it sounds goofy. Like, why would anybody want to be blindfolded while they're getting a manicure? You'd think maybe the organic piece is enough. Uh, But it was a huge hit uh, for them. Phones were ringing off the hook. and, And it became so synonymous with them that they actually made it a part of their regular menu. So now they, I think, are probably the first... A nail salon in the country to offer blindfolded manicures. However, that being said, I am sure that this is going to be a huge new trend. We're going to see it everywhere. <laughs> you know, if I would have just hung out with my nerd friends at the public media track at South by Southwest, I totally would have spared myself from learning all about branded content and social coupons. But I have been getting emails for months now emails from friends who are excited by these preposterous deals in their inbox. So, I fear this future might not be one that we can just ignore.
The best presentation I saw at South by Southwest was a short talk by Tricia Wong, an ethnographer and sociologist. She's been hanging out in internet cafes in China, studying the internet's next 300 million users. People who are um, at these cafes are all poor. They're people who can't afford their own computers. And primarily the people from at these cafes are poor migrants. And they're migrants from the countryside. And they come here to use it because this is one of the most affordable ways that uh, poor people and migrants can get online. And many of times it's also less expensive to sleep just overnight in a cafe because um, it's really expensive to rent out a room, much less a bed even. So, you know, a lot of internet cafes have actually started responding to this need by constructing cubicles so that you get a little more privacy, you can lean up against the wall somewhat, and some of them even have couches as seating in front of computers so you can, you know, play and then go straight to bed and lay down flat. (laughs) This image of people sleeping in internet cafes is often used by the Chinese authorities to stoke public outcry. Wong says that the middle class and the elites like to call these cafes things like dens of iniquity. We've heard this before about poor people coming into cities, poor people hanging out together in one space, the middle class and elite people freaking out, and the government steps in. So this happened in the U.S. around the turn of the 20th century when uh, millions of poor and Irish and Italian immigrants poured into U.S. cities. And, you know, poor people, just like, uh, you know, everyone else, they need a place to hang out, they need a place to see their friends. And when you don't have your own space, when homes aren't very big, when apartments aren't very big, and you're living in slums, you're going to go where there's space. And around the turn of the 20th century, saloons were the place to hang out. Saloons were a place of leisure. Um, This is where immigrants would go to share news about their daily lives with other friends from their village. This is also where they would find out news about their village. And at the same time, they would make new friends outside of their own ethnic group or outside of their own village. And this becomes really important because this means that you're moving from a kinship-based society where you're a social network can expand. And these creates the kind of ties that make America what it is today, which is that anyone can come and you can make friends not based on your ethnic or um, kinship group. But middle class and elite people started panicking because they thought, oh my God, here's all these poor immigrants hanging out. They don't speak English. They're from Europe. They're corrupting our society. Um, This is where violence and crimes happen, um, sexual debauchery, moral corruption. The immigrant males are drinking. They're not taking care of their children. So this is the same story that we hear right now in the news in China about how they portray how poor migrants from the rural countryside are using the internet cafe. A couple of years ago, I got to hang out in a few internet cafes in Beijing and Guangzhou and Urumqi, and it seemed to me that everyone was just playing games or looking at dirty pictures. But Trisha Wong tells me there is a lot more going on. She says these cafes are almost laboratories. People are picking up a lot of programming skills at these cafes. And I think what's happening is that this is an accessible entry point for um, people from low resource backgrounds to enter into the digital age, meaning they they can get into computers in a very um, non-scary way, and it's very accessible and approachable, and at the same time, it can pique their interest in saying, okay, I can get online, but maybe I can pick up also, this means that I can pick up some programming skills. So there's a lot of posters around internet cafes about, hey, go to this programming school, um, go to this college. 
Um, of course, these aren't real colleges because if you had access to formal education, you wouldn't be at an internet cafe. But what's amazing is that they are teaching programming skills at these colleges. And some of them are called hacking colleges where you learn how to hack away. So they're teaching you the actual skills to get around um, challenges and restrictions. Trisha Wong is about to leave for another trip to China. She told me she's going to spend a whole year in an internet cafe right in the middle of the country. She says she's going to log days and nights because what she really wants to understand are the dreams of these next 300 million internet users. Revolutions happen because, not because people are poor. Revolutions happen because of failed expectations, failed dreams, and failed hopes. And so I really want to understand on a really subjective um, really personal level. It's what kind of dreams do these people hold? And I need to spend at least a year to really understand how intense are these dreams? How well shaped are they? How do they conceive of them? How do they describe it? What's the kind of discourse around what kind of lifestyles they want to have? Is it alone just to have an avatar and have your avatar have a Burberry purse? Or do you actually want to buy that Burberry purse in real life? And what are you willing to, to, willing to do to get there? And when you have millions of people trying to create these lives, and now you have the opportunity to first mediate those identities online through a virtual identity, through a virtual avatar. Um, I think that creates a really interesting mix. And I really want to understand how, how intense are these dreams? Or can they just all be diffused through online access? So that perhaps is the internet, is a virtual world the best way to kind of keep people um, sedated? <laughs> Did you read that article a few weeks ago in the Times about Dwayne Claridge? He's the guy who started his own private, they call his own private CIA. I did, and you know, I've been dying to actually talk to you about it because, on the one hand, it seemed absolutely preposterous, but at the same time, I knew, of course, that it had to be true. It's definitely true. And in fact, I'm I'm working in a similar company that's about 10 times bigger than his. I thought you were going to do like this startup, like the iPads and hot chicks. What? Why Why are you doing this? Well, I, I did that. I started a company. I ran it for about a week until some guys came to talk to me and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So you probably can't tell me the name of this company. No. But can you talk about some of the things you're doing? Operation Persona. What is that? It is a counterintelligence, counterinformation campaign. We're creating a network of 
pseudo identities or basically fake people on Facebook and Twitter. For example, just a little while ago, my team got an operational assignment for Egypt. So we went in, we used the Operation Persona protocols and created a network of virtual dissidents, freedom fighters, anti-government people, concerned mother-in-laws, you know, anybody that might have an anti-government outlook. And we created a network of these people that had a common cause, which was bringing down the Hosni Mubarak presidency. All right. Now you're actually getting a little kind of offensive because I watched this on television and there were hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Egyptians that risked their lives to go out onto the street and protest. So you cannot say that credit actually goes to some spam bot. Kenny Mahmoud. One of the personas we created for Egypt was a guy named Kenny Mahmoud. And we were able to insert him into many of the important social media groups. This a, became an insanely popular guy. So, so he was like this message board connecting lots of the protesters that you saw on TV to each other. So he wasn't being programmed to say things like, uh, hey, everybody, let's riot. Not quite. That never happened. Thank God. Before that line was crossed, he was pulled out of Egypt. Oh, good. Someone remember there's something called, like, ethics. No. <laughs> no, no, no. No. You see, there's this internal government social media network. It's mostly used by the State Department. It's called Corridor. And I don't know how this happened, but... Somehow, Kenny Mahmood ended up on Corridor. So your own fake personas are already infecting government networks. So it's actually possible that on a daily basis, you're like talking with covert spam bots. It gets worse. Someone had engaged Kenny Mahmood on Corridor. And this guy is a senior agent who is working Operation Wisconsin. And, and he decides that it is absolutely essential that Kenny Mahmoud be deployed to Madison. You mean like monitor the fight over collective bargaining? Well, I, I don't know. The guy just thought that Kenny Mahmoud had become an expert in organizing nonviolent protests. This makes absolutely no sense. Well, I had the same question when the order came down. I was like, what is this about? But believe it or not, I think he's actually done some good. Like what? Well, you remember the guy that pranked Governor Walker and got him on the radio. Yeah, yeah, I actually listened to that. Yeah, well, there's one key moment in that tape 
where the guy is pretending to be David Koch and he says, like, maybe we ought to bring some guys in there and stir up trouble. You remember that? Oh, yeah. In fact, I don't understand why the media hasn't made a bigger deal out of that. I mean, this, to me, is evidence that he is a bad guy. I mean, he admitted on tape that he wanted to put agent provocateurs in the field. Oh, I, I agree. I think he wanted to, for sure. And he was thinking about it. And according to my friend's brother, who is running Operation Wisconsin, the reason Walker decided against doing that was Kenny Mahmoud. The real credit goes to him. This episode of Too Much Information is called Too Much Internet. It was produced by myself and Bill Bowen. It featured Paul Ford and TMI's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris, and all the people who were kind enough to speak with me at South by Southwest. Special thanks to Annalie Newitz, Trisha Wong, John Bracken, and Jake Shapiro. You can find more information about the program on the TMI playlist page, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that at WFMU.org.